0: This is Jeremy McFarlane for the Footballer's Family Podcast, and if there is one team in the NFL who has had an embarrassment of riches for a long period of time, it has to be the Pittsburgh Steelers. Now, it wasn't always this way. At the beginning of the franchise, wins were hard to come by. Yet, through great coaches, draft picks, and lucky breaks, the Steelers turned things around in the 1970s and have held on to being one of the top NFL teams since then. Think about this. Since the 1970 season, 1969-1970 season, the Steelers have had three coaches, Chuck Knoll, Bill Cowher, and Mike Tomlin. Three. In comparison, the New York Jets have had 21 head coaches in that time frame. Now, the Steelers struggled from the time they were founded in the 1930s until around 1969 when Chuck Knoll came around. They were once called the Pittsburgh Pirates, named after the baseball team in Pittsburgh. From the 1930s to the 1970s, the Steelers, who had to merge with other teams in two occasions during World War II, they were called the Carr, Pitts, and the Steagles, suffered as one of the worst teams in the NFL. Then came Chuck Knoll. His leadership and great drafting, his first draft pick was Mean Joe Green, catapulted the Steelers to four Super Bowl wins during his coaching run. Following Chuck Noll came Bill Cowher, who led the Steelers to two Super Bowls, winning one. When Chuck Noll retired, Mike Tomlin came in, who also led the Steelers to two Super Bowls, winning one. All in all, the Steelers have played in over 1,000 games with a record as of 2019 of 636 wins, 566 losses in 22 ties in the regular season, and 36 wins, 25 losses in the postseason. They have appeared in 15 AFC Championship games, 8 Super Bowls, with 6 Super Bowl wins. They also boast 24 Hall of Famers, according to Steelers.com backslash history backslash Hall of Fame. That's very, very impressive. I hope you enjoy today's podcast. We have a special guest, and I'm going to let him introduce himself in just a moment. If you would like to be a guest on the Football is Family podcast, you can message me on Twitter at Jeremy underscore McFarlane or on the Football is Family podcast Facebook page. Also, hop over to the Sports History Network at SportsHistoryNetwork.com to look at some of the great podcasts that we have available there. I'd like to welcome everybody back to Footballer's Family Podcast, and I've got a special guest that you might recognize his voice if you listen to the Sports History Network. Would you like to introduce yourself?
1: Uh, Yes, I'm uh, Darren Hayes, and uh, I have the uh, Pigskin Dispatch Daily History Podcast on Sports History
0: Network. And right now, I am in the pig pen via Zoom, and uh, <laughs> it actually looks very clean, uh, considering my grandfather used to raise pigs, and I know what they look like. So you you actually have a pretty clean uh, pig pen.
1: Well, you're not seeing the floor, though, are you?
0: Well, I'm only okay, seeing the well, ceiling. <laughs> I'll take the ceiling then. You know, half half clean, half dirty. You know, just, just But uh, there's a there's a reason why you're on, and and, and what is that?
1: Well, I'm here to uh, t- talk a little bit about the Pittsburgh Steelers, my favorite football team.
0: See, this is where this is where we're going to have some problems. This uh, for this year, we're going to have some problems. <laughs> um, no, no, I, you, you know, I, I joke and kid. Everybody likes what they like, and that's all good. Um, and I was just telling Dan a second ago that uh, my father-in-law uh, was a big Steelers fan. He grew up in Pittsburgh, in that area, and uh, we would have back and forth between him and me when the Titans played Pittsburgh. And uh, one of the, one of the memories I have is my wife came up to me and said, I want to buy tickets to the Pittsburgh Titans game. And this was a few years ago. I can't remember when, when it was. And I said, well, my wife's named Katie, I said, Katie, I work on Sundays. I'm a, I'm a preacher. Uh, I can't go. And she said, I'm not buying it for you. Said, well, thanks. I appreciate that. <laughs> So, so did you grow up in Pittsburgh or in that area?
1: Well, I live, the pig pen is in Erie, Pennsylvania. And if you look on a map, Erie, Pennsylvania is smack dab in the middle of a triangle, about 100 miles from Buffalo, 100 miles from Cleveland, 100 miles from Pittsburgh.
0: Okay. Right, up, right on Lake Erie. So, did you have, a, are there a lot of Browns and Bills fans in that area?
1: Uh, it's a mixture. It depends, you know, who's playing well. Everybody's playing well this year, so there's a lot of, a lot of fans from all the uh, three teams this year.
0: Yeah, I, I don't want to talk so. about the Browns either. <laughs> the um, so you grew up, what what got you to start liking the, the Steelers?
1: Well, I sort of, uh, my, my father grew up, he was born in the 40s, and he grew up in the 50s, and there was no Buffalo Bills then. Right. It was just the Browns and the Steelers, and everybody in our area was Browns fans because they were pretty good. Yeah, they were. Yeah, that's, yeah, they were outstanding. As a matter of fact, they go back to their AAFC days and their early NFL days. They were outstanding. They were probably the team to, be, to beat. So my dad went into service, and he, well, before he went into service, he was t- tired of everybody being Browns fans. He said, "You know these poor Steelers. Nobody likes them." Because I'm going to support them, and my grandfather did too. They sort of both teamed up on that. And then the last when the '70s came, about the time I was getting ready to start watching football. That's when they became started getting pretty good. The steel curtain was coming along, and those early '70s games, and you know the mid and late '70s, they were outstanding. So that's sort of my story how I became a Steelers fan.
0: Well, for what I understand about the uh, and and Michael McCambridge, and I'm pointing back here somewhere. He he wrote an amazing book about the history of the NFL, Mm -hmm. America's Game. And from reading his book and reading as well Joe Horgan's book on the NFL Century, uh, what I understand about the Steelers from the 40s and 50s is just they were not good at all.
1: No, I, I think maybe they had one or two winning seasons from 1933 when they came about, which the first two years they were called the Pittsburgh Pirates because like all the NFL teams, you baseball was big. So the football tried to the NFL football teams tried to go on the shirt tails of the baseball teams to get some popularity. So the Steelers were actually the pirates their first two years in existence. Did
0: so they have, after Did they have the same colors as they do now?
1: I believe so. I believe so. It's hard to so tell those black and white pictures though, right? <laughs>
0: well, yeah. Uh, I think that I think that the Steelers and the Pirates both have the same color schemes. I'm I'm not certain on that. I'm yeah, they're,
1: they're pretty much the same, you know, the black and the canary yellow or black and gold, as some people call it.
0: I'm glad that you could That's, tell difference color. It just looks, looks me.
1: <laughs> I'm just going, I think, I think the Steelers official site says there's their canary yellow.
0: Canary if I'm not mistaken. yellow. I'm, uh, I I'm believe gonna have, so. I'm going to have to start calling yellow canary yellow and see what people say about that around here. <laughs> So, so, um, during this time in, in uh, when you look at the history of the of the Steelers, there were some major moves in the 70s, late 60s, early 70s, that changed the way that, that the Steelers played, um, you know, and, and and their appearance. And what do you think some of the most important moves that they made back then?
1: Well, probably the biggest one that changed the whole culture was probably the hiring of Chuck Knoll. Uh, I believe he was like 1968, somewhere thereabouts. And his number one draft pick in his very first draft was Mean Joe Green. And that's a big culture change right there when you have somebody that's a dominant player on one side of the ball. And, you know, of course, they just started picking up the pieces, had a really good draft, I believe, in 73 when they had uh, three or four Hall of Famers in that one draft. And it just sort of set the ball rolling and uh, took them to success there in the 70s.
0: Well, did that make uh, Pittsburgh a football town? And in, in that time.
1: Well, I think Pittsburgh's always been a somewhat of a football town. I mean, the very first professional football game was played in Pittsburgh. I mean, uh, Pudge Heffelfinger was with yeah. the Allegheny Athletic Club and they were playing, I believe, Jeanette, which those are two suburbs of Pittsburgh. So it was it was pretty big. Uh, and then sort of pro football went away from the Pits, uh, Pittsburgh area and the Pennsylvania area and went to sort of the Ohio Valley, you know, Ohio state of Ohio, Michigan. That's where the early NFL teams were. Pittsburgh and Philadelphia both came in in 1933, and it was because of the Sunday blue laws were lifted in Pennsylvania. Before that, you, nobody was allowed to – you weren't allowed to play a football game on Sunday in Pennsylvania law. 1933, the NFL sort of got wind that, you know, they're going to let this law go away, and so Pittsburgh and Philadelphia both got a franchise that year. Yeah.
0: Okay, keep going, keep going.
1: And uh, Art Rooney Sr., yeah. who they called the chief, he was that very initial owner of the uh, of the Steelers. I believe he invested like five thousand dollars to the NFL, and they gave him a franchise. Well, then, and, you know, he had he had some rocky times in those first couple years. I mean, there's some stories, um, and I don't know the the total validity, of, but I've heard, I've read a lot about it, where he was up at a casino, or I'm sorry, a, a race up in Saratoga, up in New York as upper state New York with uh, one of the Mr. Mara that owned the giants. And he ended up winning a horse race that ended up paying his payroll for a couple of years. And the Steelers, they were, they were hurting pretty bad. They were thinking about disbanding after a few years. And supposedly he won this horse race for like $35,000. It paid the payroll of Steelers in the early, uh, or I'm sorry, in the mid uh, 1930s C-D-A. and kept the franchise going.
0: So if you're a Steelers fan, you need to thank the Saratoga racetrack.
1: Yeah, I believe so.
0: <laughs> now, now uh, Pittsburgh and Philadelphia are obviously in the same state, but on different sides. Correct. Is there a – I know there's a rivalry in the AFC North big time between Baltimore, Cleveland, um, Pittsburgh. I guess Cincinnati's involved somewhere. Um, and they will be once Joe Burrow is hmm. back healthy. But is there a and used to used to be your Titans
1: too? The yeah. Titans and the Oilers were humongous rivals.
0: I I always thought how weird the uh, the you know the, how the divisions were set up back then. But I think they're better now. Uh I still don't know why the Dallas Cowboys are in the East. But anyway, uh, is, there, <laughs> is there a big rivalry between Pittsburgh and Philadelphia?
1: Uh, there is. They only play once every four years, I believe. So it's not. They played this year, this past year. And there was a little bit of you know rivalry for bragging rights. You know, sometimes uh, some of the politicians and you know, the mayor of Philadelphia will have a little side bet with the mayor of Pittsburgh, from what I read. You know, something going to charity or something. or other. I'm not exactly sure what they bet on this year, but you know, it's a little bit of rivalry. But the big ones are you know the Browns, the Ravens, you know, who are the old Browns. That's that's the big ones. And it used to be the, the those Oilers years. You know,
0: yeah. If it wasn't for the Steelers in the '70s. Um, Houston probably would still have the Oilers.
1: It's possible.
0: Yeah, I, I think that it was the Steelers that knocked out the Oilers at least a couple times in uh, in the in the championship games or in the playoffs. And those Oilers teams could have won Super Bowls. They were that good.
1: Yeah, they were very good.
0: Uh, so you you've had in the last golly fifty years an embarrassment of riches. Just embarrassing how good your teams have been.
1: It that's true. And we're very really blessed.
0: <laughs> you've had what three coaches?
1: I I'm I'm 54, and I've only know I can only remember three coaches.
0: Okay, so three coaches. My Titans have had three coaches in four or five years.
1: Yeah, and, and
0: yeah, you you understand how that works. So you had Chuck Noll, Hall of Famer. Yes. Yes. You had Bill Cowher, Hall of Famer. Yes. Now, what do you think yeah. about your current coach?
1: I think he's great. I mean, he is – I don't know if you've ever seen him in an interview, but that man is probably one of the best wordsmiths I've ever seen. He comes up with terms that, <laughs> you know, on, on the fly on for questioning, like on his press conferences every week, that are – they're just unbelievable. If you – you know, anybody out there gets an opportunity to to hear Mike Tomlin speak, I mean, you – It's uh, quite an enjoyable experience to hear him and how he dances through the media.
0: What I like about him, about Tomlin, is uh, he looks like he could suit up and run out and play, number one. But how he took his team from last year to this year, and he didn't make one change or hardly any changes. Obviously, Ben Roethlisberger's playing, but they didn't make the playoffs to making the playoffs and not only making the playoffs, but maybe a first seed. That tells you something about mm-hmm. Tomlin.
1: It's uh, it does. And I mean, I believe, uh, I think he's been the coach for 14, 15 years now with the Steelers, never had a losing season and you lose your starting quarterback. And a lot of times last year they were on their fourth string quarterback Yes, they were, and they ended up 500. Uh, that's the that's the worst they've ever been in the Mike Tallman era. I think they've had two or three seasons where they were eight and eight. So and that's quite a testament with the amount the different teams that they've had in, over those fifteen years too.
0: It is. It is. Now, if you were to say, "I have," uh, you're going to start a team today. You're going to restart the Steelers today, and you had a chance to pick between Roethlisberger or uh, or uh, Terry Terry Bradshaw. I mean, who would you go with?
1: In this day and age, you got to go to Roethlisberger. I mean, he's—I think he's much better uh, pocket presence. Uh, he's had success throughout his career. Bradshaw, early in his career, was in and out of the starting lineup. And it, the Steelers had a couple of good quarterbacks back then when Terry first came on, nearly '70s. You had Terry Hanratty mm-hmm. from uh, Notre Dame and Joe Gilliam, who was—they uh, were all different, had different traits that really made them each one of them shine in different ways. And Bradshaw sort of caught on. He, he would be in the lineup for a couple games, not have a good game. They'd pull and put Hanratty or Gilliam in, and they'd, they'd go through all, the, all three quarterbacks there in the, the early 70s. And finally Bradshaw latched on to that a starting job. And, uh, and he played well. But even in, in the really good teams, there was games where you'd sit there and go, oh, my gosh, Terry, what are you doing? You know, <laughs> he, he, he had some really good talent around him too. Where Roethlisberger, he's had he has you know great talent, had some great wide receivers over his career, but there's been times where he hasn't had a whole lot to throw to, or hasn't had a running game like this year. The, the running game is not real strong, and he's doing a lot with his arm, and he's done that a lot in his career. And I think the way the game has evolved, the way it is today, passing you know teams will pass more than they'll run. Back in the '70s when Bradshaw played, he had he had Rocky Bleier and uh, Franco Harris in the backfield. Both of them, one season, had thousand yards in fourteen game seasons, back then. So
0: now, I'm I'm probably stepping on um, you know some sacredness here, but was the immaculate reception legal?
1: Uh, to tell you, the truth, I mean, it's hard to tell because the the camera footage, you can't tell. I mean, um, I like to look at it. Does it really matter?
0: Uh, see, that comes from a Steelers <laughs> fan right there. <laughs> no, um, what, what I understand is in the rules in the 70s, the receiver cannot touch the ball. If a receiver touches the ball and his teammate gets it, it's, it's, it's incomplete. That's correct. So, so it had to be the defensive player touching the ball, and then Franco Harris could, could scoop it. But the very fact that Franco Harris was right there to get the ball tells, tells me that he was paying attention. I, I believe
1: so. And if okay. you watch that play, he, he's sort of run, kind of run like a chip block. And then he sort of goes down a couple yards downfield and that pass gets thrown oh, had to be 20 some yards downfield. So Franco must've released when that pass went past him just to go down to, you know, hit a block or something, or go down to, you know, see what activity are going down there. And then the ball comes to him at his ankles. He catches it and runs down the sideline and then, you know, three River Stadiums in pandemonium. <laughs> and pandemonium.
0: That, I a, believe that was the
1: first year the Steelers were in the playoffs, too. I
0: believe it was. Uh, that year, I want to say that the Raiders probably had the best team that they ever had in knocking them out it, like that. Um, I watched a documentary on the person who has that football. Have you seen that one?
1: I've seen the one with Peyton Mannings on uh, Peyton's Places. He has a pretty good –
0: Okay, I didn't a, see that one. It was another one, and and they said that he has it locked up in a vault.
1: Yes, Peyton Manning goes into the vault with him, and they look at the football. Peyton Manning has a whole show on ESPN Plus for those of you that have that, uh, and it's the first season, last season, to celebrate the hundredth year of football of the NFL, and is a whole episode on the Immaculate Reception, and it was, it was pretty incredible. And at the end, they tried, they had. All the players that were involved—they had um, Terry Bradshaw, Franco Harris, Frenchie Fuqua from the Steelers, and uh, the Raiders linebacker uh, name escapes me. It starts last name starts with a V. Um,
0: oh, I, yeah, I know who he is. He was uh, when they talk about, uh, it, they always have him on there, and he's complaining.
1: He got uh, clipped on the play on the run back. As he's saying, <laughs> but if, they ended up getting actors to go out and try to re- replicate that pass. And actually the quarterback gets in the quarterback they have is playing Bradshaw's part. And these guys are the, the old football players. They're sitting off on the sideline watching with Peyton Manning and the quarterback that's uh, representing Bradshaw, his arm gets so tired because they keep trying to throw it and make it the ball, do what it did in the, the, the film clip. So Peyton Manning has to go in there and keep, start throwing playing the ah, part of Bradshaw. They couldn't replicate it. So what their premise was there is that, it had to be um, the defender for the Raiders, and I can't remember if it might have been Lester Hayes. Yes. Uh, hit hit the had to hit the ball at some point. You know, it definitely hit Fuqua, but it had to hit the Raider defender also to get propelled backwards like it did. Do you, for, think, um,
0: do you think that our current system could have overturned that?
1: I think we would have had a lot more cameras angles on it. Um, you know, had some better footage on it. I mean, remember, instant replay, the first time instant replay ever happened was like in the mid-60s. This is 1972, 1973, so it's only 10 years when t- television started using instant replay. I think it was the Army-Navy Navy game on uh, 1963 is when they first tried to use it, right after uh, JFK was, was uh, assassinated.
0: Yeah, it but, was, uh, they said that the machine was so big, it took so long to replay things. It it was pretty rough i mean today we yeah. have where you press a button it goes back it's it's easy right so, so you're you're if you had a top four to put on mount rushmore for the steelers anybody okay okay you got about 90 years worth of history roundabout right, so right up there? who would you have up there oh boy for
1: players or coaches?
0: It, this is this is your game. This is your uh, this is your Mount Rushmore. I give you the well, you know Arnie gives the keys to his Delorean. I give you a chisel and a hammer for your Mount Rushmore.
1: Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with players. But I, if I if I was gonna do one properly, I'd probably do a coaches owners Mount Rushmore, and I'd do a players Mount Rushmore.
0: Okay, okay. I
1: mean for if. Definitely Art Rooney Sr. on the, the coaches and you uh, have to add owners. The cigar.
0: You have to add the cigar. Yeah.
1: Side. Oh, yeah. you got to have a big cigar coming out there. You yeah. have to have a great rock formation for that. And then the three coaches that I know, Chuck Knoll, uh, Bill Cowher, Mike Tomlin, because I think they each brought something to their teams that made them uh, top of the league, you know, and at one point a champion. Yes. And if if you go to players, I would go to players that had an impact on the the whole franchise. Mean Joe Green definitely. I mean, something changed when he when they drafted him. Um, I think uh, Jack Lambert. Something changed even a little bit more when they got Jack Lambert in that, in that outstanding draft they had. It just gave the defense even more tenacity. You they had Mean Joe, but somebody in the middle. It was you know almost you know Dick Buckus, like it was. He was just a mean guy when he was on the football field, and Troy Palomaro, another time, you know, where Steelers were mediocre at best. You get Troy Palomalo, He made a difference to that. And, and quarterbacks had to worry about him every play when he was on the field. And I think that You would
0: have to, that's have to out his hair, too, by the way.
1: Yeah, he would. Maybe plant some trees or something. Yeah, there you go. And, and then I think that fourth player would be Ben Roethlisberger because 17 years and he's still playing at a pretty high level. I think he's definitely made a difference in that in the franchise. I mean, there's a lot of franchises that love to have a quarterback that's been that long, that consistent.
0: You know um, what makes me um, respect, and, and I give team, people like what they like, and I give people a hard time, but they give me it's, it's, it's a game. We enjoy it. But what mm-hmm. I respect most about the Roonies is. Um, and I believe they were the first ones to do this. And I can't place my finger. I think it was in the NFL century book by Joe Horgan. I saw this, that it was either uh, the chief or his son who basically signed a, signed a black man to go and interview and scout historically black colleges.
1: I believe you're right. Was that Bill Bill Nance? I believe that.
0: I apologize for not knowing the name off the top I th- of my head. I
1: think that's – that's I know, maybe I'm wrong. I know, I know he's up for the Hall of Fame this year, and I'm, his name escapes me right offhand. But you're right. He went to the uh, predominantly you know, black colleges in, of the south, and that's where people like uh, Mel Blount came from, John Stallworth. Yes. I mean, th- those teams of the 70s were built on on that.
0: What you, you have know, the scouting. with him, with Vince Lombardi, with – um Bear Bryant.
1: Bill Bill Nunn is his name. I'm sorry. That's Bill it. Nunn. That's it. Yes. Bill Nunn.
0: Um and actually, if I remember correctly, Bill Nunn went to was it uh uh the his son, the chief's son, and said, You need somebody here. And I think that Bill yeah. Nunn was offered the job, right? It it shows that those men that I mentioned, that color didn't matter. It was talent and ability to win a game and in the 60s and the 70s that was not heard of in a lot of places around the country
1: no you're right especially those colleges were they weren't the 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 alabamas and the notre dames of the football landscape and college either you know they were you know jackson state and you know some other some other colleges that were a little bit smaller probably right on the verge of being like division uh 1aa or division 2 even that's the colleges that he went into and found these, you know, raw players that uh, nobody had heard of. And it was interesting. I think it was John Stallworth that he, they, what they did back then is they would get the reel to reel tape on them and they'd go in the film room and watch tape on them. And Bill Nunn was supposed to pass it on to another team when he watched Stallworth's team. Well, he uh, supposedly he, conveniently lost the tape for like a couple of weeks. And then the draft came and the Steelers got John Stallworth. That's allegedly what the story, how the story goes. Something, something along those lines. And
0: there is probably some truth to that. Uh, you know, a lot of people have uh, said that Stallworth is, was better, uh, was the best uh, wide receiver that the Steelers had um, during the seventies. And I, I see a lot of that as just oh. pure, pure catching ability, maybe not as athletic, Uh, but looking at how the Rooney family was able to see what do we need to do to win? Color doesn't matter. Um, Nationality doesn't matter. Franco Harris was, was Italian. Yes. Italian background. Right. Um, You know, location of a person doesn't matter. Southern what we're going to meld them together and we're going to make a winner. And they did. That's what's so special about that team is is that, and you have a history with your team that maybe the Packers have, Um, you know, the the Browns back in the forties and fifties had, uh, you know, the 49ers in the eighties had, but what you have since the seventies is you have almost consistency from that point on.
1: And I think it starts with the Rooney family. I mean, their philosophy is they're going to do their due diligence when they hire a coach. And when they hire that coach, he's for the long term. They're going to have patience with them. I mean, Bill Cowher wasn't a great coach when he first started out. The Steelers struggled a little bit, and you know, we Steeler fans, we just came came off of a decade earlier winning you know four Super Bowls with Chuck Knoll. And you're sitting there, you know, this, this man's retired now. This other guy comes in. It came from the Browns. He was on their He played was a Browns player. Bill Cowher was, even though he was from originally from Pittsburgh, and I believe he was on the Browns coaching staff when the Steelers hired him. And, you know, everybody I can remember being up in arms and as soon as something bad went wrong, go, oh my gosh, what'd they do? You know, we need Chuck Knoll back. We need Chuck Knoll back. But this, the Roonies are so patient and they don't say, they don't say, really say boo about when their coaches are not performing up to standards or some franchises, you know, that, that gentleman's gone as soon as he ha- has a couple bad games. The Roonies are very patient and they know what they want and they know what they look for in a coach. And that's really a testament to their, the family philosophy. You know, the last three Roonies that have been in charge have all done that.
0: Now, here, here's and – and I'll leave you with this. I was uh, – I, I didn't realize this until I, I watched the uh, 30 for 30, and I guess I should have realized this, but there was a 30 for 30 about from L.A. to Marino. Okay. And I didn't realize it, but there was a chance that Marino – Dan Marino in 1983 would have gone to the Pittsburgh Steelers. He would have gone to the Steelers and be, been their quarterback, and uh, they didn't take him. Now, can you imagine? 1983, you get this, you get this guy from Pittsburgh. I think he grew up in Pennsylvania.
1: Yeah, he did. He grew right up in a suburb of Pittsburgh.
0: And he would At have been P-
1: Pittsburgh Central Catholic was his high school, and he went to Pitt.
0: And, and, you know, the Rooney's would have known him for a very long time. Can you imagine what that would have been like for the Steelers as of right now? You're not talking, what, six Super Bowls? You're talking multiple, a lot more oh, than that. Uh,
1: Absolutely. I, I can remember in the early 90s when uh, every time uh, Marino's contract would be coming up, there was always rumors going around all Western Pennsylvania that, oh, Steelers are going to do some trade or do some deal and get Marino and, And that went through more than a handful of times, I can remember. And we'd all get excited about, oh, my gosh, we get Dan Marino. But Marino really out of college really wasn't as highly regarded as what he ended up being. Uh, I forget who got drafted. There's a couple quarterbacks ahead of him that got drafted. That I I forget who was in that class. Um, Uh,
0: There was one that the Jets got. And then –
1: Eason? Eason, Eason
0: I want to say Ken Eason. I, I'm not yeah, Kenny I'm not I, or I, Ken I, O'Brien, maybe. maybe it was
1: Ken O'Brien even,
0: but the jets got one. And then, you know, of course the Steelers ended up getting the, the linebacker that uh, was hurting a car wreck.
1: Yes. Um, so, you R- know, the, the
0: offense for 15, 16, 17 years are just thinking they're lucky stars that, that the Steelers did not pick up. But I'm just saying that you had a chance at in 1983 to pick up the successor for Terry Bradshaw can you imagine what that would have been like?
1: Oh, it would have been been great. <laughs> but, it, but of course, it could have changed things the way the Steelers are today, though. You never know how those things impact, you know?
0: It's kind of like that. I mean, that the the uh, butterfly flaps his wings in China. You know, you, you don't know.
1: Right. I mean, because look what it did to the Dolphins. They had Marino for so long. They really didn't have any successor to Marino till possibly now they do with Tua. But they really didn't have anything substantial in between that they was their franchise quarterback and that could have been the Steelers too. So you think, think about that. You never know.
0: Well, if, if I leave you with this, my friend, Darren, and thank you again for, for giving us your time today. Um You have a chance to go back in history and take one thing for your collection. I, I got a lot of junk in my office right here that that's special to me, but nothing game, but you had a chance to go back and get something either game-worn or, or game-used. I mean, even, even get the jersey from the uh, Coca-Cola commercial with Mean Joe. Oh, huh? that'd, that'd be a be good awesome. one, huh? <laughs> I want to say that young man, well, I don't think he's so young anymore, but he still has it. It's framed and signed. He loves it. What would oh, I you bet. Take? What would you take?
1: Uh, I Tell you what, there's, there's a lot of things that have happened in Steeler history. I'll tell you what, I'd, I'd maybe take the football from one of my favorite plays as a Steeler fan. And it happened in the, the Super Bowl when James Harrison picked off that Kurt Warner pass at the goal line right at the end of the half and went 100 yards basically to uh, change the, the whole uh, structure of the way that game was going. Because the Cardinals were – they were starting to roll there at the end, at the end of that were. half. And when he picked that off and just to see how gassed he was and how excited everybody was, I'd, I'd want that football, I think.
0: He needed CPR after that, I, I would say. Um, I watched him work out, and that dude can bench press a bus, but he doesn't have a lot of cardio.
1: No, no. <laughs> That's for sure.
0: Well, again, thank you. And, uh, again, what is your, uh, your podcast, and where can we see you on Twitter?
1: Uh, we're The Twitter we're at, at Pigskin Dispatch. Uh, we also have a web, website, pigskindispatch.com, and the name of the podcast is the Pigskin Daily History Dispatch podcast founded on the uh, sports history network
0: this podcast it is is quickly turned to one of my favorites because number one it deals with history but also the way that you present it it's not just i'm reading off stats you put life into it that uh well, thank you that i enjoy and and that i have i have myself sent it out to several of my friends here in tennessee
1: i appreciate uh, that
0: Oh no problem, uh, and I enjoy talking with you, and we will have you on uh, in the FC Championship game when my Titans beat your Steelers, <laughs> and we will talk about how um, I could send you the uh, – my father-in-law gave me two – well, I got two things Steeler-wise. Okay. Two things. I have over here a little, little mini helmet, but I also have one of the original Terrible Towels. Ah. And it's nice. never used. But I'll send it to you to help wipe away your tears if you need it. <laughs> uh, and you might have to send it to me to wipe away my tears. You know, you never know. But uh,
1: I wish I had a, like a love you blue or something signed would send you.
0: <laughs> I have looked for those. Uh, eBay does not have them.
1: No. Huh. I, God, there I, was thousands I, of them in the stands.
0: They're probably all on the ground, but. I have up on my, I'm up here in my office, and it took me years to find it, but the AFC Championship hat, I found one and no one wore it. It wasn't worn, so it was relatively new. So, you know, you can find things on eBay, but eventually, um, you know, eventually I'll find one of those.
1: Yeah, that'd be a good, good catch for you.
0: Well, Darren, you take it easy, and I appreciate well, it.
1: Well, I thank you for having me. I appreciate it.
0: No problem.